Today's sermon passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. can be found on page 954 on the, in the blue Bible in front of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since you would, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. It's well established that Americans tend to be individualistic in their outlook. So social scientists have identified a number of factors that seem to correlate to a society's level of individualism. So one that's perhaps obvious is population density. Right, that makes sense. If you're living on the American frontier in the 1800s, you're going to spend most of your time alone or simply just with your family. Over time, it becomes much easier to see yourself less in connection to a larger community and more in terms of your own personal needs and desires and preferences. If you live in the Mong Kok district of Hong Kong, however, where there are 340,000 people per square mile, which gives me hives just thinking about it, you are probably never unaware of the presence of other people. Inevitably, you're going to have to live in a way that accommodates others, a way that makes sense of all the other people around you. A second factor is climate. Studies indicate that people in colder climates tend to touch less and leave more personal space when engaging with others. People in warmer climates tend to stand closer and touch more. And those behaviors have been found to have a profound psychological effect on people. When we stand closer and engage in physical touch, whether that's hugging or holding hands or a kiss on the cheek or an arm around the shoulder, it actually changes our perception of our relationship to others. 
right? we see ourselves more as part of a whole. So I might have just made the sort of post-service mingling time in the fellowship hall a little bit weird, but you know, be aware of how much space you have. Right? As Americans living for the most part in a cool climate with lots of space, we don't touch a lot. And uh, we're set up by our environment, perhaps, to be individualistic. Now, of course, the relationship of the individual to society as a whole has been a front burner issue in this nation over the past 18 months. Right? The spread of COVID-19 forced us to wrestle in unusual ways with the impact of our actions on other people. So if I don't feel like I'm sick, if I don't think I've been exposed to the virus, uh, do I really have to wear a mask? Do I really have to cancel my holiday plans? If I'm being encouraged to be vaccinated for the good of society, but I don't personally feel like I need it or want it or should get it, how do I decide what to prioritize? My own personal perspective or the larger societies? Well, the Bible doesn't speak directly to those issues, but it does confront all cultures, both the individualistic and those that are more collectivist. It confronts societies that prioritize the collective whole, whether that's the nation, the community, or even the family. It confronts those societies with the demands of discipleship. The Bible is clear that you must have a personal, individual relationship with God through Christ. It's not something that your family can establish on your behalf. It's not something that can be done at the level of a society. In addition, Jesus tells his people they must be prepared to stand against their families. They have to be prepared to stand against their entire society in order to be his disciple. Following Jesus might mean you're stepping outside of what's considered acceptable to those around you. And so as followers of Christ, we have to be prepared to stand against the whole. But the Bible also certainly confronts us in our individualism because we don't merely experience God's salvation in Christ and then remain as isolated individuals. Instead, the moment that we become followers of Christ, we are brought into a relationship with other believers. We become part of the church, the people of God throughout all time, in all places. Everyone who's ever been saved by faith in God's salvation, as it's ultimately revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if you read the New Testament, you'll, you'll see that the expectation is that when we come to Christ, we will become part of not just the sort of universal church throughout time and space, but we will become part of a local church, a group of committed disciples who are assembled together regularly in one place and one time, a church like this one. And it's to one such local church, the church at Corinth, that the Apostle Paul wrote a letter in the early 50s A.D., and as we consider what Paul says to that local church in that letter this morning, we're going to look to some degree at the relationship and the responsibility that exists between the church as a whole and one specific individual that Paul singles out. And so as we work through this chapter, let's, let's look at two things in particular. Uh, first, let's look at what Paul says about what a church is to be. So what the church is to be. And then second, in light of that, what the church is is to do. So what Paul says the church is to be and what Paul says the church is to do. Let's start there with what the church is to be. So we know from chapter one that Paul had received a report about problems in the church at Corinth. 
In the first four chapters that we've already considered, he's been dealing with particularly the issue of factions in the church. There was a a disunity that had grown up in the church that was rooted in their failure to appreciate the message of the cross, the gospel of a a crucified Messiah. They had had drifted away from Paul's message and and its apparent weakness and, and apparent folly, and they'd begun to crave a message that seemed more obviously wise and sophisticated and eloquent. And so as a result, as they'd wandered away from the message of the cross, they found themselves bickering and arguing because they had no source for unity anymore. Now in chapter 5, Paul moves on, and he begins to address some other problems that have come to his attention. We're going to see as we go through chapters 6 and 7 and on, Paul's going to begin to address different issues that the Corinthians had communicated to him or that other people had communicated to him about the Corinthians. And he starts with this report in chapter 5 about the conduct of one of the members of the church. He says there in verse 1 that he's been told that there is sexual immorality among them. Uh, That word translated as sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. It's used all throughout the Bible to describe any kind of sexual conduct outside of marriage. So it's applied to all sorts of different things like premarital sex or adultery or incest. But Paul goes on to to specify exactly what it is that he's talking about there in verse 1. It seems that a man in the congregation was having an inappropriate relationship with his father's wife. That's an odd way to describe what was going on. It probably indicates that, that this man wasn't in a relationship with his own mother, but rather his stepmother. But the grammar there, when Paul says that he, he has his father's wife, it makes it clear this is an ongoing situation. Right? This, isn't, this isn't something in the past, but this is a going concern. <clears throat> this is a continuing practice. And so having heard this report, Paul does nothing to disguise his disgust and his shock. (coughs) You see there, he says in verse 1, it is actually reported, as if he he can't even imagine it. He has trouble believing it. It's as if this particular expression of immorality is beyond his comprehension. It it just doesn't compute with what a church is supposed to be. you're, You're a church, but there's actually someone in your midst doing this horrible thing. And he points out there that that everyone agrees that this behavior is horrible. There in verse 1, he says, this is the type of thing that even pagans wouldn't tolerate. Right? He's, he's shaming them. <laughs> they're, they're in Corinth. Right? If you remember from the first sermon in this series, Corinth was something like, like if you took New York City, Las Vegas, and Amsterdam and sort of took their moral reputations and put them together, you had something like the, the, the city of Corinth in the first century. The, the word... Corinth had actually become a verb to basically do something perverted, right? So, so to say, look, even the people of Corinth look at what this guy's doing and say that's disgusting and wrong. And there's something, something foundationally sort of disconnected about this because, because the church is supposed to be holy. That, that's our, our first point. What is the church supposed to be? Paul tells us here the church is supposed to be holy, Look there in, in verse 6, really starting at the end of verse 6 and going through verse 8. We read there, that he says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. 
For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is comparing the behavior of this man to leaven that works its way through an entire lump of dough. So leaven is a, 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 basically a, a chunk of dough that already has yeast in it. It's already risen. And so what they would do in those days, you didn't always have like just a packet of yeast from the grocery store laying around that you could use to cause your bread to rise. And so you would, you would make bread and you'd, you'd grab a chunk of it and you'd set it aside and you'd let it continue to ferment and sort of grow. And then you'd use that, you'd mix that into fresh dough. And over time, that, that leavening agent, the yeast, would work its way through the whole new lump of dough and your, your bread would rise. Then you'd repeat the process. You'd grab a little chunk. You'd set it aside. You'd use it in the future. A bit like a, like a sourdough starter, if you're familiar with that concept. And Paul's using this word picture to make a point. So leaven contains yeast, which makes bread rise and expand. Leaven was something that sort of spread through and stretched and distorted a bunch of dough. It, it worked its character throughout its entire environment. Right? It's maybe like our sort of idiom that one bad apple spoils the bunch. Right? Paul's point is that in a similar way, this kind of sin, when it's left unaddressed in the church, it spreads through the whole congregation and it warps and distorts it. You see, the nature of the church is such that the sin of an individual who's a member of the church has a way of leavening the whole congregation. It works through and it impacts the spiritual life of the entire church. Seems to be clearly what Paul's saying here. Now, this image of of yeast and leaven, it has a a rich history in the Old Testament. It wasn't random that Paul just sort of happened upon this word picture. Uh, The book of Exodus tells us that when God rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, he convinced Pharaoh to let them go by killing the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians. And in order to protect their own children, the Israelites were to sacrifice a lamb and sprinkle its blood on the, on the doors on, of, of their homes. So in Exodus 12, the Lord tells Moses the people are to celebrate the Passover miracle by eating bread made without yeast. We read about that earlier in Deuteronomy 16 in our service. Leaven was a common image for sin or for evil. So in verse 8, Paul refers to sin, he refers to the malice, I'm sorry, the leaven of malice and evil. He calls righteousness the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So there in verse 7, at the beginning, Paul tells them, he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. See, when it boils down to it, Paul's calling them to be holy. He says, get rid of the perverting agent so that you'll be a new, clean, unspoiled lump, as you, even as you are, he says, unleavened. Paul's almost speaking in a riddle here. He's saying, basically, that you may be a new lump, even as you are unleavened. He's saying, basically, live in a way that's consistent with who you really are in Christ. See, friends, this is a great picture of what the church is called to be. We're called to be what we really are in Christ. Remember back in chapter 1, at the very beginning of Paul's letter, he calls the church at Corinth those sanctified in Christ Jesus. 
right? Despite all of their struggles, despite all their sin, despite what was going on that we, we read about here in chapter 5, the truest thing, Paul knew, the truest thing about them was that they had been united to Christ by faith. And in him, they were holy. They had been reborn. They had been renewed. They had been cleansed from sin. The problem was that the church wasn't living in a way that made sense of that holy calling. And so says, Paul says here, be unleavened because Christ has washed you. He's made you clean. He's made you holy. Get rid of that sin that's distorting you and, and stretching you out of shape. Brothers and sisters, notice that Paul here is making a connection between the way individual members of the church live their lives and the spiritual health of the church as a whole. I wonder if you've ever considered the, the connection between your personal conduct and the health of the church. Have you ever stopped to think that the way you live your life will have a very real impact on your brothers and sisters? A bit later in 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to tell the church that together they are the body of Christ. Individually, they are members of this body. And I think that image of a body is really helpful in understanding what Paul is saying here. It really helps us to understand Paul's thinking. Think about it. If you have an infection in your foot, left unaddressed, it will spread throughout your whole body. It will threaten the health of the whole. The church, like the human body, is an interconnected system. The church is a living organism where the health of one part impacts the health of the others. And so your, your sin, brothers and sisters, is never a private matter. It's something that impacts the entire congregation because we have a corporate identity. We are a body. We are interconnected. And so the presence of unaddressed sin in our midst, well, it courts the Lord's discipline and displeasure. Right, if you want to see what that looks like, just take time this afternoon. Read in Revelation 2 and 3 about the, the letters from the risen Lord Jesus to the, the churches of the ancient world as Jesus warns them about continuing on in sin. He warns them that they're risking, they're courting judgment and discipline. You see, this, this corporate identity that we have, it's why we have a corporate prayer of confession every Sunday. So Lord willing, when I lead us in prayer at the end of our service, I, I may lead us to confess some sins that you in particular are not guilty of. So we might confess that we have not loved our wives, we've not respected our husbands, we've not honored our parents the way the Lord would have us to do. And maybe that's actually not technically true of you. You don't have a husband, you don't have a wife, maybe your parents are no longer with us. And so you, you really haven't committed those particular sins over the past week. But when we come before the Lord, we don't come as, as a couple hundred disconnected individuals. We come as a church. We come as a congregation. We come as a body. We confess our sin to the Lord together. And we have this corporate identity. And so the sin of one member impacts the health of the whole. That's why in our church covenant, we pledge to one another. We say that we will seek by the aid of the Holy Spirit to live carefully in the world, being just in our dealings and exemplary in our conduct, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. 
Think about it. When you, when you give yourself over to what we might call private sins, it impacts our public witness. Right? When you're coddling sin in your life, be honest, you won't, you won't engage in public worship in the same way. Right? When you're embracing sin in your life and, and allowing it to go unchecked and unaddressed, you, you won't sing as joyfully on Sunday morning. You won't pray as attentively. You won't listen to the sermon as carefully. In fact, what we often see is that when people have embraced sin in their lives, they just stop coming on Sunday mornings altogether. Because who wants to be reminded over and over again of their sin? See, when you're embracing sin in your life, it's very likely that you won't serve as faithfully, that you won't take time in your private sort of personal devotions to, to pray for your brothers and sisters as you ought. You won't give as joyfully to the needs of the body. You won't employ your God-given gifts for the benefit of the church. The church should be holy, and its individual members should be holy. And friends, that's why it's really important that the church be a place where we can be honest about our struggles with sin. Uh, the expectation, as, as we'll see, is, is not that we be perfect. Right? That's never going to happen in this life. No, the expectation is that we pursue holiness together, that we bring our sin out into the light together, that we confess it, that we get help from our brothers and sisters so that it doesn't spread, so that it doesn't harm us and harm the body. Notice here that the, the church's call to holiness means that on some level, we ought to be appalled by sin. I looked at the beginning of verse 2. Paul says, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? See, this man's sin should have been a cause for corporate mourning and weeping. The gross, flagrant sin of this man who calls himself their brother should have caused them to feel remorse and disgrace. But instead, it seems they were actually proud. They were boasting. It seems like they were arrogant. Uh, there in verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Boasting about this. They, it seems like they were, they were somehow proud, like their freedom in Christ gave them the license to live any way they wanted to live. And so they could even embrace and accept this terrible sin. But Paul says, you should be weeping. This sin should cause you to mourn. And at this point, maybe we should ask Why? Why should the church mourn over sin? Why even should the church be holy? Why does it matter? Well, there are a number of reasons, some of which we'll consider a bit later on. But right now, at the end of verse 7, Paul gives us an explanation. He tells us why we ought to cleanse out the leaven of sin. He says there at the end of verse 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That is to say, we are to be holy. We are to be pure because Christ has sacrificed himself for us so that we could be free from sin's power over us. Right? The blood of Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that great and true Passover lamb, that blood shed for us on the cross, saves his people. Just the way the the lamb's blood saved the Israelites back in the book of Exodus. And just as the ancient Israelites celebrated their deliverance with the feast of unleavened bread that we read about earlier in our service, 
So, Paul says, Christians celebrate their salvation by living unleavened lives. Because Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, his people are to keep the feast. That is to say, they're to get rid of the the leaven in their lives. Christ's death places a, a radical call on his followers to live a new life, to have a a new style of behavior, not simply for a festival observed for a week once a year like the, like the Israelites, but a new lifestyle that's, that's to be observed at all times. There's simply no place for the leaven of malice and evil and sexual immorality in the people of the Lamb. The lifestyle of the church should be rooted in the identity of its slain Messiah. He is holy. And he died so that we might be holy. And so we should be holy and we should, we should mourn over our failures to be what we should be. Okay, so in light of that, in light of what the church is to be, holy, what does Paul say the church is to do? So this is our second point for this morning. Well, Paul tells us what the church is not to do. Uh, If you look there in verses 9 to 10, uh, Paul says the church shouldn't pursue holiness by engaging, I'm sorry, by withdrawing from the world. He says there, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Uh, Paul had previously written them a letter and he had given them some instructions And it seems at least one of those instructions was that they shouldn't associate with people who practiced porneia, sexual immorality. And the Corinthians must have misunderstood. They must have thought that Paul meant this very broadly, that they shouldn't associate with anyone who did these things. But Paul clarifies his statement there in uh, verse 11. He says, no, 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 I'm writing now, telling you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, who does all of these things, verse 11, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or he's an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Paul says, I'm not saying to withdraw from sinners in the world. He even says there, you'd have to go out of the world. He says, no, it's if someone particularly claims the name of brother, if they say they're a follower of Christ, but they continue to live in these ways, Paul says, that's the person that you can't associate with anymore. You can't, even, you can't even eat with them. Friends, there's an important principle here. We shouldn't be surprised when the world acts like the world. We shouldn't expect the world to live by the standards of a God that they don't recognize. That doesn't mean we shouldn't work to influence and improve the way the world does things, but it does mean we shouldn't be surprised when the world doesn't play ball. The Bible gives us very little reason to expect holiness from those who don't follow Christ, right? Paul even says there in verse 12, what have I to do with judging outsiders, right? That's God's business. At this point, the call to holiness that Paul is putting on the church, it's not a call to utterly withdraw from the world. It doesn't mean that you can't go to work and and talk and have conversations with, with people who don't share your values and who are themselves not pursuing holiness. It doesn't mean that you can't even have friends who who don't love the Lord and who don't pursue holiness. Instead, Paul's saying, I have nothing to do with someone who claims to be a Christian who lives this way. Look there at the end of verse 2, going through verse 5. Paul sums it up this way. He says, let him who has done this, that is, the man who's living in immorality, 
Let him be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He repeats the idea there in verse 7. He says, again, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Paul says the church is to put this immoral man outside of their fellowship. To make it clear to him that he he doesn't belong here anymore. He, He says to have nothing to do with him. Even not to eat with him, he says there at the end of verse 11. He says in that sense they are to hand him over to Satan. Right? That sounds dramatic, but I think we can understand what Paul's saying. If the church is the fellowship of people who have been rescued by the blood of the Lamb, slain for them, if the church is those who have been rescued from the domain of the devil, to be put outside the communion of the church is to be put outside that realm of spiritual safety. It's to be sort of handed over to the dominion of Satan. In order to be holy, Paul is calling the church to practice what what we call church discipline. When there is sin in our congregation, we should look to practice church discipline. Now, stick with me if you will. I think this is a, a, an important but oftentimes misunderstood and neglected practice. So if you're, if you're drifting, this is the home stretch. Focus with me. Let me point out just a few things that I think will help us understand what Paul's saying here. Church discipline, right, what Paul's calling the church to do here, sort of putting an immoral person outside of their fellowship, it should be done, it should be done very cautiously and, and very slowly. There are two, I think, opposite errors that, that we have to avoid. Uh, the first error is to simply ignore the practice of church discipline altogether. I think this is sadly what, what most churches in America probably tend towards, which is just simply we're going to let people do what they want to do. We're not going to get too... Uh, you know, involved in everyone's life, and who are we to judge? And so hey, we're just going to tolerate sin in our midst. The other error, I think, is that in, in an effort to put these principles in place, churches sort of turn into a police state where, where people are just getting thrown out left and right, right? And everyone's sort of sin-sniffing and poking around, looking for, for things that are going on in each other's lives. Instead, I think what we have here in chapter 5 is a principle that takes a lot of wisdom to apply well. Excommunication, putting someone outside the fellowship of the church, it's reserved for someone who refuses to repent of a serious and observable sin like the one that's described in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul gives us examples there in verse 11, right? Things like sexual immorality, greed that presumably like issues in some kind of behavior, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler. Right? Again, it's, it's not just that somebody is guilty of, of a particular sin at a particular time, but, but Paul's talking about these people as if these sins characterize who they are. Right? They, they're ongoing, unrepentant acts. Right? Paul lists things there that are grievous and that can normally be established. So it's, it's not that these sins are sort of a matter of opinion or perspective, but as people are, are clearly engaged in things that... that, that we know are wrong and that they won't turn from them. Second, I think it's important to emphasize we don't practice church discipline 
because only perfectly holy people are allowed to be members of the church, right? We know that we are all sinners, right? There's not one member of this church who's not a sinner. We have all acted in such a way that we deserve to be put outside of God's people. But we know that Jesus died for us, that he was cut off so that we could be included in God's people. We're able to be part of the church because Christ died for us. We're in communion with God and with one another. So when we say the church should be holy, it's not by getting rid of everyone who sins, right? Because if that were the case, we'd all be gone. Instead, excommunication, like Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 5, is for people who profess to be brothers, profess to be Christians, but who by their conduct make it seem like they're probably not. Church discipline is for people who persist in their hypocrisy, who will not repent. Right? Church discipline is the church saying to someone, you claim to be a Christian, but the way that you're living gives lie to that statement. And in fact, being removed from the membership of the churches is not meant to be punitive. Instead, it's actually for the benefit of the person being disciplined. Uh, there in verse 5, the point of this action is for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. I think the flesh there Paul's talking about is not so much the physical body. Paul's not saying hand him over to Satan to be killed, but rather by the flesh he means the, the sinful nature. It seems like this action was intended to help this man by, by, by destroying his sinful nature. The hope is that the act of being removed from the fellowship will jolt this man into realizing the danger of his spiritual situation. Perhaps he'll, he'll begin to consider the disparity between his profession of faith and his behavior, and he'll repent, and he'll return. Church family, it's our responsibility to look after one another in the church. Again, in our church covenant, we commit to watch over one another in brotherly love. And one of the ways that we do that, be it ever so painful, is by practicing church discipline when necessary. Brothers and sisters, if I become enmeshed in a sin for which I will not repent, then you owe it to me. You have covenanted with me for my good and for the sake of the church that you'll remove me from the fellowship. And if you were to fall into a similar pattern of behavior... Where, where you will not repent of your sin, you should hope that we would love you enough to do the very same thing for you. That we would love you enough to say, this is not okay. You're not all right. You're in spiritual danger. Notice from this passage that one of the things it assumes is that the church is a means of assurance for believers. That is to say, one of the ways the church functions is to provide assurance to a believer that their profession of faith is real. Because you can say you're a Christian, but you might be wrong. The Bible is clear. We can be deceived by ourselves and by sin. And so the, the church is meant to serve as something of an external confirmation. The church comes alongside you, and, and when you're brought into membership, says, yes, you claim to be a Christian, and it, it seems like you actually are one. Or in the case of this man, the church was to come alongside him and say, uh, we actually actually don't have a reason to think you're a Christian. You say you are, but Christians don't live like this. And we understand that you can fall into sin, but, but we, we've pointed it out, and, and you're, not, you're not changing. You're not repenting. You're not turning. 
Uh, the church is meant to be a, a means of assurance for the believer. See, Paul's giving us a vision here for what it looks like to be a holy church. But I think there's a few things that we as a congregation need to have in place in order to function this way. Uh, the first, I think, is a continued commitment to the importance of church membership. Right? Really, a, a church can't function the way Paul thinks a church should function here if there's not a clear sense of who belongs to the church and who doesn't. Right? The church at Corinth is to put this man outside of their fellowship. That implies that there's an established sense of who is in the church and who's not. In the same way, I think we have to have an established, meaningful sense of who is a part of this church. And that's why we have church membership. So if you're not a member of a church, I don't think it's overstating the case to say that, that you're putting your soul in danger, that you're depriving yourself of one of the potential um, paths that God has given you for your good, that, that you're depriving yourself of one of the things the Lord's put in place to help you continue on in the faith. You're depriving yourself of the benefit of assurance that comes with church membership. You're depriving the congregation of the duty that you owe them as a Christian to watch over your brothers and sisters for their good. So, friend, if you're not a member of a church, we'd encourage you to find a church that you can join, a church that will, that will know you, that will bring you in, that will identify you as a Christian, and, and should, God forbid, you fall into to sin for which you will not repent, a church that will love you enough to remove you. You can join, if, if not this church, we have a church membership class today. So if you're looking to join a church, you're welcome to come to that class and find out more about what it means to be a member here. But if for some reason you can't join this church, we'd urge you to find some church where you can um, practice these things. I think the second thing that we need in our church is to cultivate regular involvement in one another's lives. Because a membership list is important, but it doesn't make a church. Instead, we need to continue to work to develop and maintain a culture in our congregation where it is normal for us to talk about spiritual things with each other. Otherwise, we can't really do what Paul's calling us to do here in chapter 5. We, we can't just suddenly start to talk about sin when it becomes a really big issue. If it's not normal for us to talk to one another about spiritual things and about sin in our lives... Well, it's going to seem strange to suddenly be involved in somebody's business. Right? This cuts across the grain of the way we work as Americans, as we tend to be isolated and individualistic. But we need to be intentional about talking about what's really going on in our lives, talking about spiritual things, being vulnerable with our struggles. There, there are a number of formats, a number of sort of places in the life of the church where you can do that. It can happen in small groups. It can happen in women's Bible studies. It can happen in, in personal or even group counseling. It can happen in the men's accountability group. It can happen just in one-to-one -one friendships and relationships. But whatever the context, it has to happen for your good and for the health of the church. So Paul's calling the church here to be holy. And he's telling the church to do that by, by practicing meaningful church discipline. And as we wrap up, let me just step back and take a look at the bigger picture. Because the danger is that we walk away from a passage like this and we think that it's, it's kind of bad news. Like sin is bad. And so we have to be ready to remove people from the church. And now I have to be honest about things I'd rather not talk about. And all of that might be true. 
but it's not really going to make me very happy as I go out into my week. But I do think there's a different way to look at what Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 5. I think what Paul is reminding the Corinthians and what he's reminding us is that there's, there's always two feasts being spread before every human being. You're always being invited to two competing dinner parties. One is the feast of sin. That table is loaded with things that taste delicious at first. Things like lust and greed and anger and bitterness and resentment and pride and selfishness. But upon closer examination, all is not as it seems at this table. It looks like this feast, the feast of sin, is the height of luxury and abundance. But as you eat the food, it actually makes you kind of sick. In fact, it's poisonous. Everything on the table tastes sweet on your tongue. But if you pay attention, it's actually quite bitter in your stomach. And perhaps worst of all, the feast of sin, it never lets you leave the table. The food there only creates more and more hunger. And so you just keep eating more and more. And your problem just keeps getting worse and worse. And friend, it's a terrible thing to find yourself feasting at this banquet. But there's another table. And there's another feast. One set for us by God himself. This is the feast of Christ. Instead of deceitful, and the enslaving table of sin, the food here, Paul says, is the bread of sincerity and truth. Instead of the poison that's consumed at, at sin's table, we are invited to come and feast on Christ by faith, celebrating all that he is for us, all that he's accomplished for us by his death and resurrection. When we come and we eat at this table through faith in Christ, we find that our souls are growing and they're strengthened, and they're revived. Friends, it is a marvelous gift to be called by God to leave this table and come to feast on what is good, to come and eat rich food provided for you at the expense of another. Right? No one in their right mind would ever want to go back to the table of sin after tasting all that God has for you in Christ. But sin is deceitful. And sometimes we're not in our right minds. And so what this passage calls us to do as a church is to help one another. Help us not to settle into American individualism and just help myself and worry about myself, but actually to extend care and love to my brothers and sisters. And so if we see someone who claims to be a follower of Christ and they're eating at the wrong table, our job is to go and plead with them to beg them to get up, to, to leave that deadly feast and come back to the feast of Christ. And you can see how that's loving, how it's kind. And if over time it becomes clear that someone who claims to be a brother or sister isn't going to leave that table, then for their sake and, and for ours, we have to remove them from our midst. For their sake, because the very least we can do is make sure that it's harder for them to lie to themselves, to make it hard on them to to believe that they're eating at the Lord's table when they're really eating at sins. And for our sake, because we can't have the food from that feast being spread through our midst. 
That's a poison that spreads, and we need to remove it. Ultimately, church discipline is a good thing because it protects and it celebrates something beautiful, our salvation from slavery to sin because of the sacrifice of Christ, the Passover lamb for us. So perhaps the best thing for us to do as a church now is to come to the table of Christ <coughs> together, to come to this physical picture of a spiritual reality that we've been considering this morning. When we come to the table, we remember the body of Christ shed for us, broken for us. We remember the blood of Christ shed for us. Right? This is the price that was paid so that you and I could be set free from the slavery of sin's table. And so we come and we feast on Christ himself by faith, believing that we've been delivered from sin's guilt and power and penalty by his sacrifice for us. We come and remember that that sin is bitter, but Christ is sweet. And we come together as a church family, and we recognize our commitment to one another, to watch over one another, and to go on feasting at the table week after week until the Lord Jesus comes back, until sin is finally destroyed, and we can celebrate with him for all eternity. And so we come now to the Lord's table together, and I let me just give a few things so that we can celebrate well. Uh, first, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then we'd encourage you not to participate in this meal in the terms of coming forward and taking the bread and the cup. Now, ultimately, it's a celebration of something that's not yet true of you. The good news is that the invitation is open. And you can and you should leave sin's table and come to Jesus by faith. We would love to talk to you more about that. We'd love to have you join us at the table someday. If you're a member of another church, you've been baptized, and that church believes the same good news about Jesus that we've been celebrating together this morning, and if you're allowed to take the Lord's Supper there at that church, then you're welcome to celebrate with us this morning as we recognize the unity we have with every church that loves the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And finally, if you're a member of this church, but if you see something of your own story in this man in 1 Corinthians 5, if there is rank hypocrisy in your life, if you've not just struggled with sin in this past week, this is a meal for sinners. This is a meal for people who have sinned in the last week. But if you haven't just sinned, but if you're being honest, you've settled in at sin's table and you have no intention of leaving, well, then don't go through the motions here. Don't, don't pretend something that's not actually true. Instead, I encourage you, to talk to one of the elders, let us help you, let us pray for you, let us help you figure out how to get away from sin's control. If you have questions about whether or not you should participate, I'd encourage you just to look at the page in your bulletin that gives you some more information. But as I mentioned earlier, we're going to begin, as we always do, by confessing our sin together. We'll have a moment of, of private, silent confession where you can confess your sin, and then I'll lead us in confessing our sins together. Let's pray.